right, hello out there. It's time to kick things off for the Movie Club podcast number five. Uh, this is our fifth episode. Uh, today we are talking about Cannibal Holocaust and Freddy Got Fingered. Two, uh, I guess you could say, bad taste, gross out experiments in some way. Um, should be a good discussion. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I guess we'll go around the table and just introduce ourselves. Uh, I am Sean from FilmJunk.com. I am Kurt from Twitch and Row 3. I'm Jay from FilmJunk.com and the documentaryblog.com. I am Marina from Row3.com. I'm Andrew from Row 3 and Movie Patron. Okay, so, um, you know, obviously both of these movies have a reputation and, uh, you know, when we decided on doing them, it, it kind of was a strange combination, but in some way I think they're, they're pretty closely tied together. Um, I guess we'll start with Cannibal Holocaust, and uh, Kurt, as you suggested, we'll just kind of each uh, throw out, you know, if it was our first time watching it and its sort of initial impressions. Um, and just to set it up, Cannibal Holocaust is uh, came out in 1980, Directed by Ruggiero Diodato. Is that how you say that? I think it's uh, Roger. R- Roger. Roger? Roger. <laughs> okay. Roger. R- Ruggiero. Uh, now, this, uh, of course, is kind of an infamous movie because it was banned in a number of countries. Uh, there's been various edited versions released over the years. Uh, I think, I'm assuming, we all watched the, uh, the full unedited version. Um, so, uh, for me, I had actually seen this just recently in the last year or so for the first time. And, uh, it was quite an experience, an experience I'll never forget. Uh, and, uh, in revisiting it for this podcast, uh, I was kind of reminded why it churned my stomach so much when I saw it the first time. But on the other hand, I think there's definitely some interesting stuff to talk about. My first uh, experience with this movie was sometime back in the late 1980s when, uh, so we were all in our uh, mid-teens, and we somehow got a hold of a bunch of these tapes, like all of the Faces of Death series, exploitation films, um, and they were like ratty third, fourth generation VHS tapes. And I thought I'd seen this film in its entirety before, but I'm thinking what I saw back in the late 80s was actually just sort of a com, uh, like a compilation of a bits. So I always thought of this film as sort of an amateurish, sloppily edited um, grindhouse film. And then I had uh, Marina was kind enough to um, give me her extra copy, uh, which was the Dutch uh, on cut version which is just in pristine video quality and i was blown away by how well put together this movie was so my initial impression is completely wrong uh you know almost 20 years ago uh and uh yeah i i was uh this was not the movie i was expecting and um yeah i think there's a lot of talk about so when when you say you saw an edited version the parts that were missing were they the story parts or the brutal parts the story parts and okay. I, i'm pretty sure that four or five other um 
you know, there's probably in the in the late 70s up until the uh, mid 80s, there are literally dozens of Italian cannibal films. It was a major subgenre uh, for a time. And I'm thinking that the tape I had was sort of five or six of those movies all mulched together. <laughs> Greatest so, hits. Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 I never even thought of this as a narrative film, very much of one. Uh, hmm. So I was really impressed by how well, it sounds like it the like the Mondo Kane yeah. uh, stuff kind of. Yeah. Um, I saw this for the first time with Sean. We actually watched it uh, for a movie night at work, which was... Uh, <laughs> It was recommended by someone we work with who uh, then did not show yeah, up for the screening, which not only did he not show up for the screening, you know, he made a big stink saying, you know, <laughs> the movies that were being chosen for movie night weren't edgy enough. So he said, show this. I gave us a cannibal Holocaust. I had heard of it, but I hadn't seen it. And then he uh, when he gave it to me, it was unopened. So not only ha- did he not show up to the movie night, but he hadn't watched it yet. <laughs> and uh it was like watching pornography with with like your best friends. Uh I know Reed Farrington was there and he left 30 minutes in. Uh and everyone else just kind of sat there awkwardly silent and after the movie ended we all shuffled out and didn't look each other in the eye. <laughs> Sorry, the silence there. Um, It was the first time I saw it, um, and I'd only heard of it, of course, by reputation. And it was, like Kurt, it was way better than I had expected. I thought it was going to be some, I don't know, like, bunch of guys with a camera and no money and not knowing what they're doing. But I thought actually to begin with, which surprised me, and... There, it was actually quite nicely put together, and it looked really good. Like the the opening scenes, I thought were excellent, were fantastic. I it totally blew me away. I wasn't expecting that that level of um, craftsmanship, I guess. So it, interesting experience, but good. Uh, and for me, my first experience with this movie was I actually saw a trailer for it. I can't remember what it was. It must have been, this was like maybe six or seven years ago at our local cinema, and they were going to be playing it for a midnight showing or something, or for one week only. And so they show a trailer of it, and I remember thinking, that looks right up my alley. That looks awesome. I need to get a hold of that. And then I sort of forgot about it, and then a few years ago on Blockbuster, I couldn't, I could never find it. I couldn't get a hold of it. Uh, The closest thing I could find was Cannibal Fear saw that maybe a year and a half ago so this was actually my first time of finally seeing the movie uh in its entirety or at all i guess because i'd have i had a hard time getting a hold of it but uh yeah surprisingly i i don't know how much i have to say about this i think we'll just sort of let the conversation go where it will and uh see what happens all right. Well, um, you know, I guess from my point of view, I mean, I think there's there's some interesting things to talk about in terms of obviously going for realism in a movie, going with the the documentary style and the movie within a movie, um, things about like that. But um, 
I guess the first thing I wanted to ask is, did, did any of you guys find this movie... Well, first of all, did you find it scary? Like, would you consider it a horror movie? And I guess second of all, did it offend you or disturb you in some way? Well, from my point of view, I found absolutely it was a horror film. Um, there are so... At the very least, it has loads of moments of well-achieved tension. Um, and on top of that... Much like um, Cloverfield, Wreck, The Blair Witch Project, all of these uh, found footage style films, the movie makes it very clear that you know it's going to end badly. Uh, I guess that ties into uh, Paul Greengrass's United 93 as well, uh, in, in that for some reason that amps up the tension because you know it's going to end badly. Is it going to end badly here? <laughs> Is it going to end badly here? What's going to happen? You know... Absolutely. I mean, Funny Games is another one uh, that we uh, uh, talked about last time. When you know something is going to happen, but you don't know when, that's that's suspense. And I found them to be many moments. And because you're discovering the film as the you know anthropologist and team are discovering parts of the film, and you're watching it as they're being exposed to it once they get back to New York with the with the footage. And they keep talking about it in between, like, oh, the next part is going to be really bad. So they, they massage you into feeling even more <laughs> tension than it would be if it just played out straight. It, it's actually hyped within the movie. And I found that worked like gangbusters on me. I found it to be legitimately scary at many moments. Plus the, like you said, the... Film within a film, um, most of the footage looks real, looks very authentic. And when you think about, I don't know how much money this movie cost. I think it was about a million dollars. It was in 1982. And to to achieve that level of verite and not break, um, they may break it once or twice where you think, oh, would they get that angle? Or, you know, why would they be filming at this point or or oh, isn't it convenient that someone, as they fell down to die, they fell in front of the camera so that you know you you, you know. But it's very subtle, and uh, for the most part, I think they. That's what made it work for me. It was just so well put together. I didn't think it was like I didn't find any of it horrific. Um, in at any point, I was detached enough that it didn't scare me at any point either. But I did find it difficult to watch at parts, like uh, particularly the animal killing and particularly the turtle. Yeah, that really bothered me too. And I don't know if it's because I knew going in that the animal killings were real. I don't know if that, I'm assuming that had some sort of effect on me, but it was pretty, I mean, even if someone had faked that, that's Mm -hmm. pretty disgusting and disturbing stuff to watch i think well that's where the movie is kind of weird because it's i agree i think the movie is very well put together and when we first watched it i was maybe a little put off by a lot of that stuff because the way they treat the animal killings is almost like pornography especially the turtle scene the music starts as soon as they cut its head off that that like music starts Mm -hmm. and it's like like five to seven minutes long of them just you know taking this turtle apart and uh 
it, that happens with every animal killing where the same song starts almost like a porno where like as soon as the sex scene comes out the music starts and you know it's uh at first you're shocked but when it's like the same shot of something entering something for 10 minutes you eventually are bored and but i i think that uh um this it very well could be just pure exploitation but it almost worked in a way for me i mean they they didn't necessarily kill all of these animals just for the sake of killing i mean it's it's uh all these animals that were killed were killed by the natives that they were shooting with and uh the and all of the animal animals were eaten um so i i guess the turtle though is the one uh controversial one because it's it's a tortoise. It's something that I, I think it may even be illegal to kill something, a tortoise like that. Like this is something that lives for over a hundred years and you're right. fishing it out of the water. It, that thing could have been like 80 years old or something and you're fishing it out and chopping it up. I, I, I did watch, I don't know if anyone else did, but I watched everything on the DVD. I watched the commentary, uh, all the behind the scenes stuff. And it was just as interesting as the movie because the commentary track is the director and the actor in the film. And, uh, the actor confronts the director on a number of occasions on the commentary track about his reasoning for doing all of that stuff. And the director basically says, well, what if it was a cow, you know, like it's okay to kill certain animals, but not others. And he, I remember him saying that during, I think it was during the, the turtle thing, the tortoise and the actor was like, well, this is a tortoise. <laughs> like he, it's illegal to, to kill something like this. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, an initial, sh once the initial shock wore off, this movie is pretty ahead of its time. Uh, just the, the way it's, it tells a story and, uh, the, the found footage and whatnot. It's obvious that this was the inspiration for the Blair Witch project and, and everything that kind of came after that. And, uh, I don't know if this came before or after Man Bites Dog. I don't know if one... Way, way before. Way before. Um, so, I, I and I enjoy that. And, and, you know, as far as the convenience of people shooting in these, these movies, how they keep shooting, uh, I think I said in our review of Cloverfield that after 9-11, I've realized that it's not unrealistic for someone to continue shooting in, you know, situations like that, like in Cloverfield or in this movie, because, you know, when that happened that day, all people did was film, you know, and, and some of the stuff that, uh, I heard on, uh, Cinecast, I was listening to a bunch of them while renovating the basement and, uh, listened to a show where you, you had mentioned you saw the nine 11 documentary. Right. Uh, and that's a pr prime example, you know, the, uh, how he mentions in that he was obsessively cleaning his lens. Uh, and it's almost like, you know, he was focusing on his camera to get away from the reality of what was happening. Uh, and you know, these Verite movies, even though there's some pretty heavy stuff going on in them, I don't think it's absolutely unrealistic for them to be shot the way they were. Although I will agree that, you know, stuff like people falling in front of the camera, is, uh... takes a stretch of uh, <laughs> yeah. suspension of disbelief. Well, the the thing with um, the continual shooting thing, I found it fascinating in this that um, even more so than any of the other um, uh, verite horror films that have been made in the 
21st century. Um, there's one point where one of their own film crew is basically captured by the cannibals and they follow, <laughs> they follow the cannibals in and get footage of them taking apart like one of their close <laughs> friends. Now, I mean, the fascinating thing about Cannibal Holocaust compared to all the other like United 93, Diary of the Dead, Wreck, um, uh, Cloverfield, is that the characters that are doing the filming in this are completely unsympathetic assholes. Like, mm-hmm. they, the, the, it is very clear um, that the people that found the footage are aware that they have been faking half of their own footage to begin with. Part of me, while I was watching this movie, thought it might actually have been them faking their own thing it actually falls in nicely with how the movie was received <laughs> with his you know because the director was arrested for uh murder for a short period of time because they thought that they killed a couple of the cast members for authenticity right. but anyway these these characters um you know when they can't get good footage of the natives doing anything they basically burn the village <laughs> to get them incense so that they can get better thing and you see all of this um they rape one uh native woman at one point um and so the characters are thoroughly unlikable. So on one hand, I can believe that they would eat their own, uh, i.e. film one of their own being a, being just taken to get apart. A, just to get a more sensational... Uh, more sensational footage or whatever. Well, I mean, if there's a if there's a you know a message to this movie, um, getting away from the animal stuff for a bit. But if there's a message to this movie, it's that um, you know savages, primitive tribes may do some pretty barbaric things, but civilization does it for entertainment purposes. <laughs> you know, I mean, look at YouTube, look at the Gong Show, look at uh, reality television. I mean. Cannibal Holocaust is a great message to that 20 years before that stuff even came along because the documentary crew here, there's a great scene where they discover the famous iconic scene in the movie where they discover this woman and she has a post shoved through her vertically. And there's a a pre-shooting part where they're looking at it and the the main director guy is actually laughing and giggling at seeing this. He thinks it's funny. And then the guy says, okay, we're going to shoot. And then he's like very solemn and, and, and very, I mean, I'm sure news crews with a lot of the stories are like that nowadays. Um, There's the face that you put on for the media and then, you know, for the people watching and then there's how you really feel. And I mean, these people are pretty desensitized and pretty, more barbaric than anything you see. And I think that's very clearly the, the, the movie's almost heavy handed at times with that message, but nonetheless, it's a pretty clear message and it justifies a lot of what the filmmakers do to an extent. Cause then you get into this whole natural born killers argument where, or funny games. <coughs> are you, are you vilifying this or are you vilifying it while at the same time indulging in it? Because there is that meta level with the animal killings and and uh, a variety of things going on in the movie that, well, how can, you know, Ruggiero Deodato condemn it so much when he is, in fact, doing exactly the same thing? Which is something he's accused of on the commentary track by the, the actor. And uh, he tries to squirm his way out, I remember. Well, according to Wikipedia, he, I think it says that he... He regrets doing yeah. animal killings now. So, 
I don't know. Because it adds an extra sticky element. It's always the, uh, you know, the big blockbuster. You can watch New York City be wiped off the face of the earth, 20 million people gone. You see that dog go, and all of a sudden people start getting angry. I mean, it's it's ludicrous, <laughs> but people tend to feel that, you know, humans bring it on themselves and that the animals are innocent. And in this case, like you said, when it gets kind of pornographic with the uh with the animal killings um i can see that rubbing a lot well, of people the wrong way yeah i think this movie could be compared to pornography in in more ways than that even i think one in, one thing i got after watching this is the actors i couldn't tell who was um I don't know. I, I I couldn't tell who maybe w- got into this movie by accident and and you know came on to set one day and they said, okay, you're gonna have to shoot a pig with a shotgun, point blank, uh, as opposed to the people who maybe knew exactly what they were getting into and chose to go into this. Because I know there were some actors that walked off the set uh, because of some of that stuff during the muskrat killing or whatever the one actor left um but he came back and this is the kind of movie that i think a lot of the people in it might be a little ashamed of because there's some pretty brutal stuff going on in here that is even though some of it is fake a lot of it is real and even the fake stuff is pretty intense and it it just that reminds me of of you know maybe an actor who was involved in a you know, uh, a soft core porno early in their career. And, it, you know, it's kind of tainted their, their, uh, filmography or whatever. In this case, it's a classic. It'd be like someone being in deep throat. Well, <laughs> but here's an interesting <coughs> tidbit to go with that. Robert Kerman, who is the, the professor, professor Harold Monroe. Yeah. He, according to Wikipedia, again, I don't know how reliable this is, but it says he's had years of experience working in adult films under the name Richard Bola before he was in Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, now that you mention yeah. it, he's the one who's on the commentary track. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I he mean... Was also, he was in Debbie Does Dallas. Nice. This, this reminds me of when I was a kid, and I remember looking at uh, metal bands like... Uh, or even bands like the Misfits or something that had these personas that they came across as pure evil. And as a kid, like five, six years old, I would see these shirts or people wearing these shirts and those characterizations would, I would truly think some of these bands were evil. Like, uh, you know, uh, Guar. Yeah. Like some of the, the metal bands that were like, like Motley Crue and, and stuff like that, that were heavy in their satanic imagery and whatnot. And it was hard to separate that. This movie now, it's hard to separate the personas, the on-screen personas from the off-screen. Like, I have no idea how someone could, as a job, uh, as, as an actor, go in and one day, you know, be doing a, a dialogue scene in, in the forest or the jungle, uh, and then the next day have to shoot a pig point blank or, or you know, de-shell a tortoise. Uh, it just seems weird to me that they, they would be... Uh, Either they, they knew it and just didn't care or they were plopped into this without any kind of idea of what they were getting into. For me, the like I th- going back to Kurt's tension thing, because the <laughs> characters are so unlikable and and the acting is pretty poor too, uh, 
I didn't feel much of a tension at all. Like, I just didn't care at all what happened to these guys. I knew that it was going to end badly, because you do, but I didn't really care. I was just sort of, okay, when the, when's the next scene going to happen where the character jumps? Because they're just assholes, basically, like you said. And uh, Yeah, I don't know. So for me, there wasn't a whole lot of tension. The tension came in... The animal killings and not tense like like from a obviously a story or, or a plot standpoint but I think Sean hit on it knowing in advance that these were real killings it was really difficult for me to watch and I'm not one of those guys like I can pretty much watch anything and it's not going to bother me so I'm sitting here eating a bowl of cereal and having a lot of trouble getting it down because I'm watching this uh, turtle being taken apart, but I guess just the, my point is that I didn't I didn't like any of the characters and didn't care about any of the characters. Uh, the only one I had any caring about, I think, was like the professor guy, who was sort of in our shoes. Well, he's the moral center of the movie. Like, I, I one mm-hmm. of the problems I had where I thought the movie got a bit heavy handed was the last line of dialogue from the professor where. He basically spells the message of the movie out as clear as day when the movie does a darn fine job. It's a very sophisticated piece. I mean, I I put it up there easily with um, films like Funny Games um, or uh, I just can't think of another one right off the top of my head. A, A movie that is really a savage satire of the media and the fakery that goes on when you start to build a narrative out of something that's happening more or less in the now and how the misinformation gets caught up in the sensationalism and how, you know, all of a sudden the documentary crew or the news reporters or, or whatever becomes this voice of God because they are editing the story, how they say, see fit. And, when you watch um, this footage, and then you, you, you have to understand that even within the context of the movie, there's someone that edited their own footage together. Because when they sit down to watch the movie within the movie, they say, oh, you know, our editors put some sound on it or, or whatever. And they've obviously editing the, I think there's at least two, maybe even three cameras that are being pulled into the jungle. They've merged them together. Uh, to make it just in the interest of time. And even then, there's a lot of narrative and story building that's in there. It, it actually nicely ties into how do you present a documentary of subject matter that is going to be highly offensive to someone? And there's many different ways to do that. And well, the way they do that within the, the one- fictional narrative of the film is quite sophisticated how they give you various different sides and the reactions of the people who found the footage and i mean the movie is a really complete package well there's the one part where the the guy they talk about they show the the military killings or whatever and then they say flat out our editor this is all fake it's not real and there's sensationalism going on here and funny enough that footage is actually real footage apparently of executions has anyone seen um, – it's another Italian film. Uh, it's, it's also an incredibly sophisticated horror film uh, called Who Can Kill a Child? 
Uh, it yeah. opens up with, I mean, it, it's a fictional movie, completely fictional. It's like a, it's almost like a zombie uh, movie. Some, if you ever seen that movie, Maximum Overdrive, replace the machines coming alive and just and, and wanting to kill everything and replace it with kids. Basically, anyone under like the age of twelve wants to kill all the adults. Uh, that's the concept of the movie. But the movie opens with all this real war footage uh, in the 20th century and how all the innocent kids are injured in these adult wars. And I guess part of the message of that movie is saying, you know, like there's some sort of karmic thing happening that now the kids are going to take revenge for all of the war. And so the the movie opens up with all of these like, um, you know, uh, Holocaust victims and Nanking Stuff and uh, starvation all across um, uh, the de- desert portions of Africa, um, and uh, <clears throat> I think there's some uh, East Timor stuff in there as well. I mean, all real footage, and it, and then you have this sort of blatantly fictional film attached to it. It makes for a weird context when you're viewing the movie. I mean, another example I would bring forth is uh, if you've seen Richard Linkletter's Fast Food Nation, which is um, a fictional version of Eric Schlosser's sort of investigative reporting book on the fast food industry. <clears throat> the movie's very Richard Linkletter. It's just people talking and ideas thrown up in the air for the entire movie, except for the last scene, which brings you right into the killing floor of a real um, uh, slaughterhouse. slaughterhouse. It happens to be in Mexico, but it's ostensibly in the United States. And it's all real killing. Now, of course, these animals were going to be killed anyway because, you know, it's just the industry. But, I mean, make no mistake, you're watching real animals being killed. Likewise, the other movie, you're watching real footage of kids being killed. It it gives an extra punch, but then it brings in the whole issue, and I don't know how everyone at the table feels about this, of, of the exploitive nature of that. I, I personally don't have a problem with it. Um, well, someone that I think is really good at mixing stuff like that, although not to that extreme level, is Werner Herzog. Uh you know, uh, he's just as known for his documentaries as his fiction, but he uh, brings his documentary filmmaking techniques to his fictional films as well and uh, utilizes a lot of real footage. You know, like when he's shooting uh, Klaus Kinski heading a band of, you know, tribes people going through a jungle, it may be a fictional film, but they are truly going through an insane jungle and they're truly pulling a ship over a mountain and. Uh, you know, there, there, he uses a lot of animals in his films, uh, and his whole thing is, you know, creating these images that, uh, have never been seen before his adequate images, as he says, and that they, uh, that's one thing I always look forward to when seeing his films, like even in rescue Dawn recently, uh, there's a scene when Christian Bale is tied to the ground and you hear the, this buzzing and there's a kid holding this giant like flying beetle on a string and something like that is, uh, you know, classic Herzog using these real weird animals or he uses a lot of unusual people who are missing limbs or have some sort of affliction. And you could say that's exploitation as well, I guess, but he is someone who, who does it brilliantly. And I think cannibal Holocaust is on a different level than that and definitely doesn't do it as well as someone like Werner Herzog. But watching it, I do get the sense of the jungle and the sense of danger and uh, reality that I think it 
it succeeds in, in that. Uh, whether or not it's exploitation, I lean more towards that it is, just from the editing of it uh, and the music. But uh, it, it works for this specific story for me. And, and speaking of music, that's one other thing I really liked in the movie is the soundtrack. Um, the main theme. I love themes that are seemingly uh, not fit for movies. to the visuals. Yeah, like Ennio Morricone does that quite often. Mm-hmm. And uh, this theme, the Cannibal Holocaust theme, is uh, pretty awesome. It's just totally not, <laughs> doesn't mesh with the movie at all, but it does in a weird way. It's, it's really good. Yeah, particularly like the opening shots of Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, it's just all aerial footage going in over the jungle with that yeah. theme. Yeah. Did that ever put me in the mood? That it just that in itself, five minutes of the opening credits, and already I realized that the movie I thought I saw back in the eighties was not the movie I was in store for. That is so sophisticated. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's simple, but at the same time, quite sophisticated. I wasn't so big on the. Um, Synthesizer, yeah. <laughs> uh, like you said, the bomb chicka chicka want want kind of <laughs> score there. But uh, I did like the other. Uh, I did like the. I like the theme as well. Mm. Well, another. I actually had to check to make sure it wasn't the same guy who did uh, Escape from New York. Some of that synthesizer. JC. That would be, that would John, be John Carpenter. Carpenter that did that. Oh right, yeah, and uh, it was very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, kind of on the topic of the movies you guys were mentioning, uh, brings to mind the recent Rambo movie as well. That started off with real footage uh, from, I guess, from Burma or whatever. And he actually did shoot it in the jungle in that basic area. Uh, and, of course, you know, lots of violence and limbs flying everywhere and stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, I kind of, when I watched Rambo, it was the same kind of thing. It's like... You know, I'm watching this and I'm enjoying it, but at the same time I'm thinking, well, you know, this is based on a real world conflict where this stuff is kind of supposed to be actually happening. And you've distilled it into pure disposable entertainment. Yeah, exactly. There's the message right there in Cannibal Holocaust. Is That's that's the moral quandary that the movie is actually dwelling on for almost the entire runtime is what's more barbaric the, the the act that we go to war or the act that we then film that war and watch it as entertainment i think rambo just says that someone it's about time someone steps up and takes it into his own hands just goes in and blows everyone away and gets gets it solved but it's interesting that you that you say that because the act the director eli roth used Ruggiero Deodato in Hostel Part 2 as a cameo. And um, <coughs> the director, having seen the Hostel movies, actually being filmed for one of them, and seeing that they do do well. I mean, obviously, they're, all, they're very talked about, and loads of people hate the movies. Many people are like the movie, and many people, which is the scariest thing, are completely indifferent to them. Um <laughs> And he's he's in the mo- at the moment again according to Wikipedia shooting a companion piece a modern companion piece to Cannibal Holocaust which is supposed to come out in two thousand and nine uh, and he's doing this because he realizes that he won't be put in jail this time. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? Do you know what he shot? Uh, do you remember the uh, black and white? I think MasterCard ads with Robert De Niro walking around New York. 
Does anyone remember those? Sounds familiar, but... And he would just say, like, lines about New York, then, like, use MasterCard or whatever. Apparently, he shot those. He directed those, hmm. which is a pretty wow. uh, literally commercial thing for such a, a wild man. <laughs> well, another thing worth mentioning, too, just on the topic of the, um, uh, the companion piece you were talking about, they're also doing a remake of Faces of Death, which I've been very curious about. And the guy who's directing that did another movie called Sandman, which was somehow um, something about... Oh, it, it's, it's, it's called Sandman, but it's S ampersand N-D-M-A-N, which was a very controversial film on the festival circuit because it uh, was a guy that was distributing uh, ostensibly snuff films. Right. And... Part, it was one of these American Splendor style documentaries where half of it is faked, half of it is real documentary. I never saw it, um, but it everywhere that it's gone, it's pl- it's been highly controversial because yeah. it, again, like Funny Games, like Cannibal Holocaust, it holds the audience on trial for actually enjoying what it is expected to deliver, but it, it takes it to the next level and actually punishes the audience or at least makes the audience question why they come to the table for this and what they expect when they come to the table. Like do you, when you come to this kind of movie, you want to see spectacular kills. You want to see something that's so outrageous. You haven't seen it before. This is a great dovetail into Freddie got fingered by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it actually, it doesn't reward the audience for seeing it. It punishes the audience. And a lot of people take offense to that. I find that fascinating when you can probe that sort of, divide of you are actually knocking down suspension of disbelief with your own film which is generally the kiss of death to a movie but i don't know on on one level it it actually you know it's 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 a piece of entertainment or a piece of art as conversation while you're watching it not not afterwards you're actually in conversation with what's on screen in the moment i mean i'm sure everyone while they were watching cannibal holocaust was like you said, you were a little bit detached because it's so crazy that you actually start pondering the morality of a lot of things while you're watching it. You're not sitting there slack-jawed. Well, that's the thing with watching it with a crowd of people who didn't know really what they were getting into. I don't know about you, but I was really uh, aware of the people around me, and I wasn't totally, like, I wasn't really, if I was watching it by myself, I would have, you know, it would have been a different experience. I would have it would, it still would have been shocking, but I wouldn't have had that sense of like, you know, I feel bad for so-and-so back there who had no idea what they were getting into. And, and like that right there, you know, the fact that through a lot of the movie, I was concerned for those in the theater with me who, uh, didn't know what it was about, uh, I guess says something. Marina, did you want to, uh, jump in here? I wasn't sure. I, I don't just don't see the point of remaking this for 2009. Uh, even with the hostile films, and yeah, okay, so he's not going to go to jail, but what's the point? I, I just don't see any point to it, and I don't, I don't really know if people want to see any more of that. Sure, the hostile films and even Saw, I guess, have made money, but I, I kind of get the sense that we're at the end of that now. We've sort of moved beyond that, or at least I sure as hell hope so. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends what he sets out to do with it. I mean, if it's just a straight-up remake, then... 
Because, I mean, apparently they're working from the same script, so I'm assuming it's a, apparently it's the same movie, if this is what they're doing, but this, I, I, I just don't know if it's even necessary. This sounds a heck of a lot like Michael Haneke remaking his own film in Funny Games, another one of these odd connections when we <coughs> seemingly randomly pick these films to talk about, but though you, I, I seem to see the similarity between... Cannibal Holocaust, 1982, Cannibal Holocaust, 2009, Funny Games, 1997, Funny Games, 2008. Yeah. And a lot of people have the exact, that exact same uh, question. And typically the sort of, you know, pseudo-scholarly probing style version of that movie is never embraced by a massive audience to be like the people who go see see saw will probably walk out 10 minutes into cannibal holocaust remake it's just because again a movie like cannibal holocaust punishes its audience where saw yeah you know it's it's aiming to be entertainment it's 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 not even trying to, to bring awareness to what you're actually watching it's just there the only thing I'd say about a remake of Cannibal Holocaust is he might be able to uh, gain some people, uh, some audience members that might be alienated or turned off by the animal killings. Yeah, because uh, yeah. I imagine he the won't animal killings won't be able be. to do that. Right. And part of the, the reason why Cannibal Holocaust works is because of when it was made and the fact that it looks like a documentary, you know, a dated documentary and you know what this is going to look like. Yeah. It's yeah, going to look I mean, like Rambo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might not. I think maybe from his point of view, it's a chance for him to get a little bit more respect back because now he's kind of like, when he made it, he was vilified and all this stuff. But now it's almost like come full circle where it's like people are appreciating this movie. He sees that people are doing similar things now. And you we'll know. watch any behind the scenes footage from Hostel. Uh, and you'll see Eli Roth wearing a Cannibal Holocaust T-shirt. He's yeah. constantly wearing it on set. Well, I think it's interesting that I'm curious to see um, a new version of um, Funny Games, but I have no interest in seeing this redone, like none whatsoever. I mean, I'm not saying I'm never going to watch this again, because at some point I'm sure I'll probably get to it when I introduce somebody else to it because I, mean, I think it is there is some value to it even if you know it's hard difficult to watch at times but I just I have no interest in seeing it redone whatsoever yeah I think the first version like you said even with the animal stuff in there because the animal stuff ties into the point of the movie like how do you create these civilized people looking more barbaric and I think the, the, the sort of wanton animal killing and, and again it's not the killing of the animals it's the doing it for the purpose of the camera that yeah. makes it disgusting that's what makes it disgusting I mean animals are killed all the time it's the doing it as a spectacle that makes it truly morally questionable and that is the thesis of the movie yeah how do you capture that again in a remake I don't know. I, I honestly think that this first go around is as pretty much as professional as you're going to get the treatment. I, I, that's what blew my mind about this movie is just how damn sophisticated it is. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that we haven't mentioned anything about the women in the film. So I, I, I thought that 
that close to opening scene with the, uh, I guess, ritual killing of the woman, I thought was pretty questionable. I, I mean, I looked away a couple of times, and I then I kept thinking, well, what the hell is he really doing? Like, I and I, I found the, throughout um, the various ways in which women are, um, I guess, that it, it just it made me really uncomfortable. And I, 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 use, I, I tend to think that I'm usually, I can usually take that stuff because I know it's not really happening, but I found it really uncomfortable to watch. And I think the, the, particularly the forced abortion scene where, you know, they get right in there and you see all these faces and you're not quite really sure what's going on and then you see the end result and it just, it really disoriented me for a minute and I, that was really difficult for me to watch. I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, you bring up a good point. I think, obviously, uh, you know, being the only uh, the only woman at the table here, that's that's a perspective maybe we're we're lacking a little bit. But I will say that one of the rape scenes for me was almost as difficult to watch as the the animal killings. And yeah, I mean, the abortion scene is pretty disturbing as well. Um, it, I think part of it for me is maybe. Like you guys are saying, all the men in it, they act like complete assholes or unlikable. But it's it's almost, it's to another level. It's like they are literally acting like animals. And I guess that's kind of the point. Well, there's a scene where the two guys, the two documentary filmmakers, rape a native woman. And yeah. it, it seems almost arbitrary. It seems like they do it just for kicks. But, I mean, again, these, these guys are bastards. Then their female companion... Um, who is the girlfriend of at least the director, uh, she tries to get in there. And I thought for a moment the movie was going to go to where these guys are so, get, are so savage that they're going to just you know throw her on the pile kind of thing. They didn't. But they yeah, came dangerously, dangerously close. Um, and kudos to, to them that. for not you know going that low. <laughs> Great. Spare us a little bit. Thank you. But there is a lot of casual nudity, like even before the uh, – that may just be a European sensibility. But um, like the scenes, the found footage scenes before they get into the jungle when they're just hanging out, there just seems to be, a, I think, a lot more casual nudity than um, I would expect a documentary. Even even an extreme documentary that, that you know, are, they're probably pretty tight because they've been in a lot of – crazy situations who knows how many of their own making but besides the fact that they just seem far more casual and not only casual about just being that way but they're also filming it like i mean it's fascinating that back in 82 when everything had to be done on celluloid um and the bulkiness that comes with shooting everything on celluloid uh that they hit on what would really be consumer video camera age um, themes. When you say the movie's way ahead of its time, that's an understatement. I mean, they they nail almost anything that I've seen done with modern commentaries on, you know, personal media, like where you're you're creating your own media stuff. And they do it back when it was very difficult to do. So kudos to them for, for being, yeah, 20 years ahead of the game. I, ha- I have a question, and I couldn't seem to find an answer anywhere online. And maybe Jay, this maybe this came up in the um, commentary track. But the 
I guess the the tribes people are they just extras that they found somewhere in the jungle, or are these actors, or what's the deal with these people? Uh, I think a lot of them are actual extras because I know they mention in the commentary that uh, when they kill the monkey and eat the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everyone was very excited because it's a delicacy, and apparently the people on the the crew and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, certain people on the film were excited. But I remember them mentioning one person that was a uh, definitely like a jungle person. I think it was the person who <laughs> knifes the the mus- muskrat or whatever. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I thought it was really interesting how they managed to capture the. Um, this sort of raw, like, it really looked real. Like, I've seen my share of, you know, films and anthropology classes, and for more than once, I'm kind of like, well, you know, these people actually look, it actually looks like somebody went into a village to, fa- to film this. I mean, the whole thing with the shaman, I think, I thought was great. I mean, it looks like they just yeah. literally copied something that they saw in some documentary. Contrast that, that to... Um, 1933's version of King Kong, which was a huge, huge artistic deal, like milestone in cinema at the time. And the native sequence in that movie is so ludicrously bad. You know, it doesn't look anything remotely real. Yeah, the fact that these guys are just a low-budget little team in there faking it and yeah. yeah they they that's what makes this movie so um timeless is that they achieved something ostensibly an early experiment in doing this thing and that they had such a level of success with it right out of the gate yeah. um but in a bit of um life imitating art again um the filmmaker himself faked so much about the mythology of this movie, which again, the Blair Witch people hit on as well. Um, but he, you know, he had the actors sign contracts that they couldn't appear in anything for a certain period of time to make it look like they were really killed or to add to the authenticity of it. And so everything that this director is holding on trial about staging within the movie, he's actually a full on hypocrite in order to doing that. And I don't know, maybe his, you know, in his own impression of his art, he needed that third layer to bring it to the next level. But, you know, people that hold him on trial for precisely that, I mean, they have a big leg to stand on. He, he, like I found the same thing with Oliver Stone's natural born killers. I, I mean, Oliver Stone is so much reveling in what it's on screen that it's actually disgusting that he's trying to pass this off as, you know, an anti-violence and whatever, because it's obviously wallowing in it. And unfortunately, in this movie, the biggest black mark against it is that you do get the sense that the director is wallowing in the very thing that he's trying to hold on trial. So, you know, how how authentic or how, um, you know, how much of a voice can you be if you're actually, um, you know have your waist deep in your own hypocrisy when you're, when you're trying to make this critical voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that would be my only black mark on, on this movie. I, I, again, I don't have any problem with animal killings in, in movies. I mean, 
as a society, we, we eat meat every day and it's not killed very humanely. So, I mean, I can live with that. So whatever, if you add the filming to it, it doesn't really bother me. But again, if you're getting on the moral high horse and you're doing it, then it gets a little more sticky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like the stuff with the, the professor, uh, kind of, um, with them watching it. And it kind of reminded me that side of the movie reminded me of like a Larry Cohen, uh, kind of like uh, Michael Moriarty. I, I could imagine Michael Moriarty in that role, only not getting naked. And uh, I, yeah, I really enjoyed that side of it as well. So it it it's a pretty solid film. Solid, definitely. <laughs> oh, I want to finish. I just want to finish with this. If we're almost wrapping up here, yep. I was doing some research online, and I came across um, an interesting review, which is extremely extensive. But I really liked this guy's closing thoughts on the film. Um, his name is Scott Ashland, and I think he's just some Joe Blow who, you know, likes Grindhouse films. But he says he said it really well, and I, I totally agree with this. He says it seems to me that Cannibal Holocaust has a certain vile, monstrous genius about it. And I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's it's one of these films that uh, I, I I don't feel bad that I saw it. It's not something that I would come out and oh yeah no I saw that I wanted to see that but I, I'm happy I did see it because I think I think there are some redeeming parts about it and even with all the crap that I can't really watch again anytime soon um, I think there is some stuff there that's worth revisiting at some point. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good way to look at it for sure. Um, any other closing thoughts before we move on to Freddy Got Fingered? I had one thing, but it um, it completely slipped. Uh, Sorry, Kurt. Completely slipped my mind. That's okay. Um, yeah, maybe I'll I'll uh, interrupt if it comes back to me, but. Um, Okay, um, so moving on now. Oh, here it is. Oh. There it is. <laughs> so, uh, see how that works. The one, the, the thing that I wanted to say, it, it, it's it certainly, um, it, it may undercut Marina's final summary of the movie, which was very good in, in a single sentence. Uh, but the one thing that makes a lot of the scenes where the anthropologist and the other anthropologists are watching the movie, and I think even within the movie, when uh, the characters this director has such a great grasp on how to film a good reaction shot and I find when I'm watching movies when I watch someone else react to what they see within the movie it's quite often generates a stronger empathic response in me and I think that's just the way human beings are wired to read people's faces but um, again signs Signs is a good one. Fight Club is another one where you see, you know, when Edward Norton's mashing Jared Leto and you actually don't see it. You mm -hmm. see all the guys just stop in horror of what's going on. These guys that were just reveling in it. And when you watch the anthropologist and then there's a woman and then there's another guy and half of the time, either before it's before you go back to the footage or right after the footage, the camera will linger on all three of their faces. And they're not just 
their faces in horror. It's what Jay said when he was watching it with his coworkers. It's those faces glancing at the other faces within the movie. That level of sophistication in when you're watching a movie and then you're watching someone watching other people watching the movie. Um, again, it's just another element of uh, that, that ties into what Marina said. Ties into the, a lot of ostensibly horrible and exploitive things can be forgiven if there is some higher purpose, even if it's buried a bit in hypocrisy, just because it's so well done. I, I have to admit, I, I can suspend a lot of judgment on things if someone is bringing it up to, let's just come right out and say it, an art form. And, and I think that Cannibal Holocaust does what it does with a sense of extremely high art, which is actually quite flabbergasting because the movie has a reputation of being a down-and-dirty grindhouse piece of filth. And you rarely get a movie with this subject matter done with that level of artistry. And not only is it ahead of its time, it does everything that it does as if it is mimicking, like it's standing on the shoulders of other things. And this was doing it right out of the gate, to the best of my knowledge. Okay. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean... It's definitely one of those movies that, uh, you know, great for discussion, not something you want to watch with your parents, but um, that said, uh, I guess uh, we'll move on uh, to the other movie for this week, which is, uh, or this month, sorry, uh, Freddy Got Fingered. Now, this, uh, this is Tom Green's, is this his, his directorial debut? Uh, I don't know if he's actually directed anything since then but uh certainly this was this came out when he was at the height of his popularity his his career and in a lot of ways this movie sealed the fate of his hollywood career um (laughs) thank god (laughs) now um i okay well i guess we'll go around the table again on this one um i saw this movie in the theaters when it came out uh and hadn't seen it since then um at the time i remember being kind of mixed on it thinking that wasn't that great wasn't that funny but at the same time i felt like tom green was a little smarter than to put out something that was bad with and like unintentionally bad if you know what i mean um re-watching it again it was kind of fun to 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 see some of the stuff but at the same time i i still felt like there was a lot of scenes that kind of fell flat and um yeah it's it's a weird weird movie let's put it that way um this was i don't know if i'm proud or embarrassed to say it but it was my third time watching um the movie and i can beat that (laughs) sadly um there's part of me that again i lumped this movie in with funny games i lumped this movie in with cannibal holocaust in fact it, it ends up being a genius pairing um because both of the movies are audience punishment with actually, if, if you really watch the movie, there is some level of forethought that's going in. Freddy Got Fingered does not achieve the effect it achieves overall by accident. It doesn't achieve it by incompetence. There's, there is a incredibly subversive, angry, you know, you can argue it's worth but there was an intent going in, and they achieved that intent to some degree. So I actually, 
Um, Sorry, so do you mean to say that this intended to be bad? I believe that this movie, and I don't think I'm alone in this belief, but I, I think this movie, when Tom Green and his co-writer, um, uh, Darren... Uh, Derek, Derek Harvey. Harvey. Derek Harvey, that's his name. Um, when they sat down to do this, I think they realized with all of the other ones out there, you know, you had your um, something about Mary's and... and um, Kingpin and and uh, saving Silverman and and yeah, it was right all, at the height of the gross out comedy. There were so many of them there that I think they realized that they couldn't actually legitimately make a movie that would top those in terms of being entertaining. So they went the other way. They went the incredibly savage, angry parody, and not a cheap ass scary movie four parody where they just recreate. A greatest hits package to sort of giggle only because you've seen all the other movies. They actually were aiming at something more like, um, uh, and I may be held on trial for saying this, but something more like P.T. Anderson did with uh, Punch Drunk Love, where they're actually mocking that these characters can even be believable within their own gross-out comedies. Tom Green brings the man-child, the Adam Sandler man-child character to such a level of ludicrousness in this movie that that's why it offended all the audience because he actually broke through the suspension of disbelief wall and that's what made people hate this movie. It wasn't necessarily that the movie was bad. It's the the fact that the movie is intentionally bad and goes out of its way to rub its audience face in the fact that it's intentionally bad. Um... And I don't know. I have a grudging respect for that. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I mean, <clears throat> first off, I'll say I'm a huge Tom Green fan in general. Uh, I remember seeing his uh, comedy channel show uh, in our teens, and it was very influential. And and you you can't deny like as much as everyone loves to rag on Tom Green and. He's basically, he had his 15 minutes and then people, you know, tossed him out with Polly Shore. And, you know, he's basically the equivalent of an MTV, a washed up MTV VJ now for a lot of people, um, which is so wrong. Like that's 100% wrong. Uh, he opened so many doors for so many people that you know, if you want to question whether or not these people are actually respectable anyways, but like jackass, um, yeah, I, I watched the Tom green, uh, talk show out of his house. I, I, I watched the whole year of his internet stuff and now his it's on TV and he's had members of jackass on there. He had Kenny versus Spenny on there and all of these people don't do not hide the fact that he started this all. Like in the, Ottawa. yeah, the, the barging in on his parents, that was him. Bam Margera got that from him. Uh, his, you know, early days of skateboarding, like he, he, he started that and whether or not you like that sort of comedy is, is a whole other argument, but you cannot deny that Tom Green is, uh, an, is innovative, and whether or not... Well, another big thing is Borat. I don't know that there would be Borat necessarily without him. He kind of started the whole man in the street, messing with people kind of style of comedy. Yeah. Uh, um, so there's there's that side of Tom Green. But then there's also the side that 
you know, you can compare to Andy Kaufman, uh, where he just would put on these giant pranks. He wasn't always just sucking cow udders. He was doing things like that whole Monica Lewinsky prank when he started the rumor that they were going to be married and it was just an advertisement for handbags. Um, and it's stuff like that. When he, uh, was on Saturday Night Live. He had a big prank about marrying Drew Barrymore. Um, I know, Sean, you've also read, and I've read his uh, book, uh, Hollywood Gave Me Cancer, Gives You Cancer, cancer. Causes Cancer. And it's pretty brutal what he went through uh, in in terms of being completely put on this massive pedestal and then completely torn down uh, and just being in the public eye for the, the whole process. And, you know, it's it's in to hate Tom Green. And I'm not saying everyone who doesn't like him is not uh, sincere about it. That, you know, I, I'm, I know his sense of humor and his style of comedy isn't for everyone. But I think it's he's just been totally uh, he's a, as the Devo album is called a pioneer who's been scalped. Uh, he, you know, is isn't given the credit that he deserves and hopefully he'll get back in the in the public eye with his uh, talk show, which is another hugely innovative thing that he's doing this show on the Internet and television simultaneously. The ability to take Skype calls from people around the world. Uh, you know, he's just he's respected by some people, but unfortunately hated by many others. And just open the co- the DVD copy of Freddie Got Fingered and you'll see in the leaflet the good and it'll ha- it has the whole New York Times uh, review, which is uh, praises it. Scott's review, and then on the inside, the bad, and it's just all of the other reviews that ripped it apart. And <coughs> the the uh, the movie is I find it very funny. I I as I said, he, I'm a fan of Tom Green's, but some of the stuff in that is visually just interesting like stuff i've never seen before uh we've had this discussion on a previous film junk podcast where in a discussion about cinematography i was saying that you know cinematography a a good um, a movie isn't always remembered just for you know the framing of a shot or something like indiana jones the the ball rolling uh the boulder chase you don't really remember what happened in that, how the shot was framed. You just remember the action of what's happening in it, right? The, the actual action of a ball rolling. And that is the set piece. Freddie got fingered has the like weirdo equivalent of that in, you know, with his sausages on strings and his, uh, backwards man stuff. And, you know, his use of props and like the house dropping on him and him going through the window. Um, just stuff like that is I think uh, very artistic. Like it's not just uh, completely ridiculous. Like, I don't know. I I think that there is something else on a a whole other level with this movie. I know a lot of people say that and uh, there's the people who hate it and the people say that it's brilliant and it's art. Well, it's kind of like an Andy Warhol kind of uh, thing too. And, but uh, yeah, I mean, I can see that. Um, <clears throat> Marina? Well, I just wanted to say that, I mean, Tom Green isn't a genius in his own way. Because I, you know, I don't think that this was all just an accident that it's quite this bad. I didn't take anything from it. 
at all. Like, I just, I didn't think it was funny. But then, you know, the whole gross-out comedy thing has never been my cup of tea. I don't know anything about the history about it. So, to me, this is just another comedy movie that doesn't work. So, on, on that level, that's where I'm coming from. That's not to say that I don't think Tom Green has any talent. Like, he's talentless. Because I think the guy <coughs> certainly has talent. And like you say, Jay, uh, there were a couple of scenes, like the backwards man thing did actually make me laugh really hard. I, I thought that was really smart. I did enjoy it. And I liked bits and tiny little bits and pieces, but there are just huge chunks that are so, like, and maybe that's the intent. They're just so out of left field. They just totally don't work. Like the, uh, the feeling, the, these, you know, trancing around on... <laughs> Like with the skin of a dead deer or something, I like to me that just seemed pointless. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't think it was pushing any boundaries other than it was tasteless. See, and I, maybe I, I'm missing the point. I thought the I joke think. in that wasn't necessarily him running around with a, a deer skin, but the whole kind of movie, I guess, cliche of you know the person in the scene before saying, "You've got to get inside the inside. animal." And him going, get inside the animal and taking it that literally and Again, that it's that ridiculous. Insulting and actually taking the Adam Sandler man child character, which he's built an entire career on. For that matter, Will Ferrell, uh, who is sort of Adam Sandler version 2.0, um, does this and people. You know these movies make two, three hundred million dollars worldwide, and that he and Tom Green takes it to such ridiculous proportions. I mean, take for example, um, at the beginning of the movie, um, the movie opens up with you know him going to make his career in Hollywood, and the movie pursues that for like what fifteen minutes. And then he's already back home and you have a completely another movie. I mean, he's mocking the fact that there are a thousand movies that start out and follow the arc of someone going and making it in Hollywood. I mean, even smart filmmakers like like, um, or edgy young smart filmmakers like, say, Kevin Smith leans on that in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back as a brutal crutch that's easily his worst film for that very crutch and the way tom green just hacks that off at the knees and then yeah buries the animal uh you know the 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 advice from the studio hack of what to do and whether that fails or not the fact that he makes it look so stupid and unfunny that that is that is the andy kaufman um Mm -hmm. sense of humor right there <clears throat> so go figure. Freddie Goldfinger is too smart for me. <laughs> no, I, I just and I, I mean I can sort of watching it. I sort of thought, okay, well there has to be something else underneath here because this is just it's it nothing is this bad unintentionally was my thought. I just didn't get it. You know, the the comedy does nothing for me. I don't know anything about the background. I don't know anything about Tom Green. So to me, it was just painful painful to watch except for rip torn who's hysterical the father cracked me up constantly well i mean like it could be i i know there's probably a lot of people listening thinking you know these guys are just giving this movie too much credit and you know trying to turn this piece of crap into something that's genius or art but um 
I think if you took, say, a scene like uh, the the childbirth where he, you know, swings the baby around and there's the Indian women, you know, playing their drums and the blood spraying everywhere. And if you put that scene into a Ben Stiller, uh, Fairly Brothers gross out comedy, that scene would stand out so much within that film. Even the grossest Fairly Brothers gross out comedy, that scene would be above and beyond even their taste. Well, and, and I think and I, that is a sign that that scene in Freddy Got Fingered, because it's within the context of that movie, which is all kind of extreme. I, I think seeing that scene disconnected from it kind of shows that they were going for this ludicrous level of gross well, out. I think you you may be <clears throat> onto something there. Like, I mean, obviously, like Kurt was saying, there's it was at the time when there's a lot of gross out comedies coming out, and Tom Green was already known for doing some things that were pushing the envelope. So they had to come up with some stuff in this movie that really you know, would take it to a whole other level where people could not even take it as being funny, you know, like swinging a baby around by its umbilical cord. Or another scene is when uh, um, Harlan uh, Harlan Williams, he uh, breaks his leg skateboarding and then Tom Green's licking the bone that's protruding from his leg. Like, that's just so disgusting. And it's not in the least bit funny, but in some sense, it's taking it to just a crazy extreme on purpose, I think. But um, I just actually, uh, Andrew, we haven't heard from you in a while. Are you still there? Oh yeah, I'm here. Okay. Well, let's, let's get your, <laughs> let's get your impressions, your initial impressions. Well, I, you know, like I said in the beginning of the show, I didn't have very much to say about either of these for, for me, Freddie got fingered. Uh, it's got lots of laugh out loud moments. I was, you know, I admit it. There's a lot of, but there's equally, if not more, moments of just eye-rolling, and this is stupid. And for me, you know, besides going through the movie and picking it apart scene by scene, you know, oh, that scene was funny, that scene was funny, I, I don't have a whole lot to go there. I, I think all the stuff that Jay said in praising Tom Green is, is fine. I've never seen any of that stuff except for, you know, I only know him from this and his MTV thing that he did. And to me, his jokes just sort of... I don't know, maybe the writing is, is funny with like the other characters, like Rip Torn, but him, he takes his, his joke far every time. And I don't mean too far in a... Uh, you know, like a graphic nature or, or the deer scene or anything. He just drags it on over and over and over again. Like, I'm reminded of... He had one scene where he was, he had a big, not in the movie, but like in his show where he has a, he likes to rub his butt on things. I can't remember what that's called. Ooh, I'm rubbing my bum. I'm rubbing my bum. And it I believe it's called on. the bum bum song. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's just not, it's just stupid to me. Not funny at all. Cool. How, however, like I said, there are a bunch of moments that are funny. I guess my only question I would have about this movie is... When an elephant ejaculates, is there really that much sperm that comes out of its penis? Yes. Oh, God. That was, I was like, holy shit, is that really what an elephant I think the, I think that the was, Tom Green philosophy is always uh, um, more better? is more, not less is more. Um, and 
I don't know. I, my the thing that I enjoy the most. Again, you don't enjoy this. I don't think this movie can be enjoyed on a literal level. There are there are only a few scenes that are mildly amusing, uh, but as a one of the most world class studio practical jokes, um, next to Gremlins two, <laughs> and or Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho, which is another one that is it, you know, was it legitimately necessary or was it Gus Van Sant saying this would be a great party or I, I would just like to do this. Oh, isn't it great? The studio is going to hand me eleven million dollars, or in the case of Freddie Got Fingered, fifteen million dollars. And the fact that that that's what he comes up with with fifteen million dollars um, is fantastic in the sense that he is actually mocking the entire studio system by creating this movie within the system. Okay, well, look at the movie itself. The movie, the story is based loosely on his own life. Just take away him and his animations and replace that with his comedy. Yep. Now, in the movie, he's living in his basement, parents' basement. That was in real life, same age and whatnot. Uh, Rip Torn is his dad, mm-hmm. and uh, the mom is the mom, and he does have a brother as well. And what happens in the movie is he becomes, uh, he, he sells his animations, and he gets a check for a million dollars. And what does he do with that million dollars? He spends it on renting a helicopter. He spends it on cutting his house in half and uh, having it sent to Pakistan. And he completely wastes the million dollars on these jokes and these kind of revenge sort of tactics against his father. You could look at that, and that's basically, if you're, if you're looking at Freddie Got Fingered as loosely you know, based on Tom Green's career, that's exactly what this movie is. He was given $15 million. Finally, his father is proud of him, and that's what he did with it. Uh, this movie is the equivalent of him buying $150,000 worth of jewels <laughs> and giving it to a girl and renting a helicopter. Um, well, I, I do think, like, rewatching this now, at the time when it came out, um, I think most people thought he was... You know, obviously, you wouldn't think he's trying to sabotage his own career. It only makes sense. He's trying to be funny. He's trying to be successful, right? Now, in hindsight, I think it's a little bit easier to look at this and say, well, he was definitely, you know, after this, high-fiving his buddies and going, like, check this out. I actually got this on screen. Like, can you believe that? Because there's some scenes in this that I think, you know, I, I just picture in my head these studio execs who are like, Tom Green's the hottest thing. Whatever he wants, we'll do it. And, you know, like, it's, it's cool. The kids like it. And Tom Green going, no, trust me, like, you know, the, the kids will love this. And, like, talking them into, like, all this crazy stuff that's in the movie. And, um, you know, I, I think some of the problems with... Uh, some of the things problems I had with it maybe are, like, the, the dead deer scene or whatever... It kind of reminded me a little too much of stuff he had already been known for doing on his show. So I think maybe in that sense, because he reused some of that stuff or like, you know, the uh, sucking the the cow's udder or whatever else. Yeah, but that happens often. I mean, look at Borat. I mean, he uh, in the movie version, he has to touch upon certain ideas that were in the show for the people who are. Yeah. And I I, like either studio execs were like, well, when you did that 
cow sucking utter thing. That was funny. Can you put that in the movie too? Like that's one possibility or another possibility. Imagine that studio meeting. They're just like, (laughs) there's one request. We want you to be, you know, chowing down on a plate of cheese sandwiches while watching a horse taking another horse (laughs) from behind. But seriously, I don't doubt for a second that there were some, there were actually meetings like this about the movie because it's an MTV, <coughs> at least partially produced film, right? And uh, you can tell because I mean, every five minutes there's a song playing, maybe not always the the, the newest, hottest. Actually, song that's from the one time, of the things. But, while you mention that, I want to stop you right there. The soundtrack on this movie is actually quite sophisticated. There are some great tunes, like the opening credit sequence to um, uh, Johnny Rotten's Problems. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's I mean, whether or not you could whether or not they're used well or or, or whatnot that. Yeah, it, it's not a pandering soundtrack. It's not a let's just put a bunch of hot new artists on there. There's actually some care in, you know, whether it's used to any level that that's debatable. But I mean, there's some damn good music in that movie. It's not just latest and greatest stuff. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. There's it's just, you know, I can definitely see why people hated this movie and why it was bashed critically but you know it's just in the back of your head you're watching some of this stuff and thinking okay tom green knows how ridiculous this is like he's not you know he's not putting this out there and expecting people to go with him the whole way and and laugh and i look at you we brought up we've brought up borat a couple times i look at freddie got fingered as the scene with borat Mm -hmm in the Midwest stadium where he starts off saying one thing, and this is him to the movie executives, not to the audience, to the movie executives saying, you know, I support the troops. And then all of a sudden it's, he's, he's pushed it a little further and it's like, kill them all, kill them. You know, you know how that scene starts from something that you would expect pandering. And then it pushes through the wall of pandering into some subversive act of studio terrorism. And, I mean, it's the genius behind Freddy Got Fingered is the fact that it's relentlessly not entertaining. <laughs> it, it, it's not the fact that you watch the movie. It's the fact that the movie was made is is and, and yeah, OK, does that make for an entertaining 90 minutes? No, but there well, has to be said as a piece of performance art, not just within <clears throat> the movie, but having got the movie through the studio system itself is some act of. Uh, of, of art yeah i mean there's there's no for me there's no questioning that an element of this movie is exactly that and it's just you know pushing the boundaries and making some things horrible because one tom green is openly uh a fan of andy kaufman two he's got the same uh agent or, or manager as andy kaufman had um and it's you know it reminds me of this the tv special andy kaufman did where he had them play with the the picture role so that people would think something wrong was wrong with their tv and you know people are like why are you what's the point of that and it, there is no point it's just him entertaining himself uh is the point and um i think that's what a lot of this is is tom green and Derek harvey entertaining each other by, you know, look at the the very opening of the movie is Tom Green doing voiceover to his drawings uh, about the banana applying for a job as a sale as a, 
what TV repairman or something. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. Like there's so many elements like that that are clearly I, I can't see any other reason for them being in there other than they're in making jokes. each other laugh. Like when he runs into the restaurant looking for the animator guy and he's dressed as an English Bobby <laughs> like that. There's no reason for him to be dressed like that. <laughs> And there's hardly any mention of it. Like the guy says, you know, your, your dress <laughs> is an English seems well body, in before they even mention yeah. it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just stuff like that. And the whole thing with the cell phone, like the recorder ringing and <laughs> pretending that his uh, wireless phone is a cell phone. And, well, and <laughs> the fact that he can con- constantly <coughs> convince Rip Torn, like with the slightest, like the most obvious lies, yeah. convince his dad that he is on track. Like bring it hook, line and sinker his dad in again and again. I mean, again, it, it comes to the fact that uh, this movie is is taking the wall of suspension of disbelief, which is necessary to prevent any audience member from nitpicking a movie to death. If you've got suspension of disbelief, you will overlook loads of stuff. Um and the first thing that the that um, Derek Harvey and, and Tom Green do with this is roll suspension up in, of disbelief up into a ball, lob it in the air, and belt it over the outfield wall. I mean, like, and, and they constantly uh, call attention to that. I, I have a bit of a secondhand story. It's a, like a friend of a friend story. But one of my coworkers, while Freddie Got Fingers was being made, is high school friend of Derek Harvey. So he was. I was always getting the writer perspective of what they were doing and um what the what what my friend was saying again and again and again is that they're doing this to crack each other up the the fact that they're being paid and getting away with this and what like the same thing with that matt stone and trey parker played with the um motion picture association ratings board um freddie got fingered went through rounds and rounds of ratings board stuff just the fact that they could get a um you know horse ejaculation into the conversation of a ratings board was entertainment enough for them now does that translate to an audience member in the seat being entertained uh no but i think the movie is operating at a different point now i i mean i it's it's totally legitimate to write the movie off as a piece of crap because the movie itself is not the object here, or at least that's the perspective that me watching the movie is coming in. It, it, it's, it's a piece of performance art that's actually exterior to the movie itself. Yeah, well, I think well, like the movie plays out like a series of segments, uh, each one kind of like a you know performance art piece unto itself. And you know, Jay, you brought up the sort of the visuals, visual gags and things like the English Bobby, you know, things that, you know, they go so far out of their way just to have something weird that doesn't really make sense. But, you know, just to make a statement or just to get your attention with it or. Well, like the the baby scene, one of the funniest things about that scene isn't necessarily the baby but the Indian women playing their drums, like it's just so abstract and unusual that um, I, I can't help but think they're just trying to come up with the most ridiculous stuff they could. I, I don't, I don't think that all that stuff is a defense of the movie. I sort of, you know, like I said, I laughed a few times, but saying that it's a wonder that this got through the studio, one, they're doing it all as 
um, for fun and all that stuff. I don't feel that that's a defense for the movie because by making this movie, they're asking us to spend our time and money on it. And if it's all there for their entertainment, then I can totally understand why critics would slam a movie like this. And I guess I'd probably be one of them. Hey, if you can't see the humor in that, because, I mean... I would take one Freddy Got Fingered over a thousand clicks, uh, over over a hundred thousand. Um, uh, what was the remake Adam Sandler made of uh, the Longest Yard? No, uh, of uh, Mr. Smith Goes to, uh, or sorry, Mr. Deeds. Um, you know, I would. T- the fact is, this isn't some rote writers just running through the formula again and again. Um, you know, which is. I think, again, the joke of of what you're saying is you're saying they wasted your time and your money. Well, you know, look at the volume of cinema that have been wasting people's time and money. Um, Uh, Yeah, agreed. I don't think that's a defense of the film, though, either, to say, well, there's other bad movies, too. Yeah, but this movie is openly mocking that. Like, I mean, look at, again, I I keep coming back to the Adam Sandler man-child because Adam Sandler in those movies... I mean, you could even probably raise this as a criticism of some of Judd Apatow's films, is that the man-child or the arrested development guy always get these together women. Like, these women that are actually... The the biggest criticism I always see of Knocked Up is, how the hell would that happen? You know, only in a movie could that happen. And now, look at what Freddie Got Fingered does. She is a uh, handicapped woman who is overcome her handicap is a part-time rocket scientist who whose favorite activity outside of calculus and rocketry is giving blowjobs and she lets her man constantly beat her and takes pleasure in it i mean that is like that is five or six layers of he's amalgamated every one of these um uh, ironically several of them played by Drew Barrymore who happened to be married or in the process of marrying Tom Green at the time uh, into that one character in the movie he even gives her Drew Barrymore's annoying giggly laugh um, you can't say that that's accidental or that that's brainless that's actually pretty good parody that's sophisticated I think that's reasonably sophisticated satire sure. and if you come away with from that entertained or you know which I actually did I thought some of that stuff was funny but I'm sort of defending the critics here that if you don't find it funny and it was it's just there for Tom Green to get a laugh and maybe it's not then then I don't think it's got a whole lot of worth to it. Well, I'll say on on you know as as far as my feelings towards the film, I don't like it just because I think they pulled a a fast one on everyone and I'm in on it and you know high-fiving them. Uh, I think they, I think there are elements of it where they did intend that, but I truly think that there's, uh, elements of that movie that are genuinely funny and creative. I do too. Um, like, like I said, his use of props and, um, it was the same way in his show. He, he just had a way of taking everyday props and and like you know when he gets on the bar and he's like playing the violin and he smashes it and he starts spraying the water hoses and and like he just finds a way to to make use of these things and turn them into jokes like if you look at his old show whenever he would interview people he would pull out 
you know, a bag of milk and stab it and spray it or, or, you know, whatever. Or that time that he went on the Mike Bullard show and he brought a dead raccoon. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) but like, you know, I, I find, you know, daddy, would you like some sausages? Truly. (laughs) It's a compelling image. It stays with you. Yeah. And like just that visual to me, I remember that clip on seeing the commercial for the movie and seeing that clip. And that was what sold me on it. I was like, all right, I got to see this thing. (laughs) You love sausages. That scene down in my notes. That was one of the best. You're talking about with the strings and eat and play music. Like you, you won't see something great. You won't see something visual like that in a a fairly brothers comedy. And you won't see it in like epic movies movie or like some <coughs> easy to knock out but still horrible comedy yeah um and you know there's a lot of that in his show so i enjoyed it on that level as well um so i i, I truly find it uh, a funny movie uh, beyond the uh, inside joke one other visual that, gag that i thought really worked is when well not only is his brother committed to the children who have been molested thing despite the fact that he's not even living at home he's he's like a okay that's mildly amusing but the children's ward um when all the kids are sedated because they've been abused the, the the it's an easy gag it's a throwaway gag but it totally works the scene um and it's a great tie into cannibal holocaust because the scene that's on the tv in the background during that is when leatherface is hanging the woman up on the meat hook Mm-hmm. Um, the visual equivalent of Cannibal Holocaust woman mounted on post. Uh, that's the exact scene that's playing um, uh, on the TV mm-hmm. <laughs> while he's on the phone or doing something else. But it's in the background there. And, you know, I, I, that's actually damn funny. Yeah, I mean, the, it's some of it. To me, when when I see a movie like Jackass, I am a big fan of the Jackass movies. I know a lot of people aren't. Some of the reason I'm laughing is simply because I'm I'm laughing at the fact that I'm laughing at this. Like this is so stupid, and you know everyone is in the theater is laughing, and I'm joining in because like why the fuck are we laughing at this? And that's why um, half of the YouTube videos you post on Weird Web Wednesdays are funny. They're not funny necessarily because of the content. They're funny because these things are getting millions and millions of hits. And this is what's considered funny. And like watching something, you know, like the Britney guy crying and, and all of this, it's like, it's funny because this is what got traction. Yeah. Um, so, and that's yeah. Tom Green. I mean, yeah. Tom Green at that moment in his career <clears throat> was the it person that baffled as many people as people went along with it. And how much of this is Emperor has new clo- no clothes and the fact that the movie goes out of the way to prove by the very emperor that he's gotten it's like the emperor coming to the realization before the child in that fable i mean there's something to that i mean just look at the scene where he's in the shower wearing the scuba gear and there's like this light like jamaican steel drum music playing and he's talking about you know finding the treasure and no, <laughs> rip torn is like that's just soap on a rope and he's like Shh, i'm pretending and then he throws it in the toilet and you know says he has to go into the underwater cave and rip torn pulls him out and he says you saved me from the barracuda like this stuff is not you can't tell me that he wrote that you know thinking anything other than people will laugh because this is so stupid it's like the bum bum song 
the bum bum song is not funny i i hate novelty songs what's funny about the bum bum song is it it charted the bum bum <laughs> song was on mtv on total request live so many times that they ended up having to bump it uh so that it, it wouldn't get played anymore like that's what's funny about the bum bum song and that ties in with your youtube thing i must admit though in the ridiculousness of that whole <clears throat> scuba scene in the movie and the fact that most people myself included are irritated by tom green's incessant repetition um like it's not done with any particular you know how a stand-up comedian will be in the middle of an act and they'll come back to some you know wrap around to another bit that's quite sophisticated and i like when uh, i can appreciate even the form of a comedian doing that um tom green of course tries to do all that within the same three seconds which undercuts the whole thing but i have to admit in that scuba scene um when he's got the soap in his hands and he's saying with complete earnest, we will live like kings. Yeah. And he says it three times. That cracks me up <coughs> to no end. And it's a catchphrase that easily, like the sausage phrase, even with the rest of the moving being total crap in terms of visually and comedic sophistication on a literal level, the way he delivers that line, he, 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 he nails that line. Or when, when he's on the fake cell phone having the conference with the guy about stocks and he's like, you know, talking about transferring money to Helsinki and, <laughs> he's, and he's like, you're fired, Bob, you're fucking fired. And he's like screaming it over and over. It's just, but again, it's the, it's the Adam Sandler man child. It's the fact that you don't know any, he doesn't know anything. He only knows. It's like someone saying they speak Italian by constantly saying mozzarella and yeah. macaroni over and over again. It's like and a kid look pretending those, to be a it's, cop. It's a kid pretending to be a cop. Exactly. See, I, I think like, I don't know. I think with Tom Green, like I kind of agree with Andrew on some level, like there are scenes in this to me that felt like maybe it was like they came up with like a quick idea for this scene and then didn't even really plan how it was going to go down. And then Tom Green just pulled off his whole repetition thing and just tried to stretch it out. And some of those things were some of the things that I didn't think worked comedically. And I was kind of like, okay, what was the point of this? But uh, I think also maybe something we're not mentioning that is actually uh, uh, worth mentioning is I think the buy-in from the other, the rest of the cast in this movie is part of what made it work. I mean, like they, they could have been there watching Tom Green do his thing and thinking, this is such a piece of shit. Why am I here? But they all gave 100%. Like Rip Torn is, you know, totally. completely and like Julie Haggerty. Yeah. Well, just, you listen to Rip Torn. He does some select uh, scene commentary on the DVD and he's pretty uh, glowing about Tom Green. Like he praises him for being not only a nice guy, but uh, coming up with what he thought were pretty genius gags. And in particular on Rip Torn, I totally agree with Marina. Uh, if there is any, consistent entertainment value and Freddie got fingered from an actual performance level getting completely outside of the meta although there's a bit of meta with with rip torn but basically just on face value rip torn is entertaining every time he's on screen but the scene where he pulls his pants down and asks tom green to sodomize him um it reminds me very much of a movie that was released very similar time um 
which was called Saving Silverman, which has Arlie Ermey, who most people know as the drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket, and he, he's sort of sp- played that character many times, although he does serious roles too, like he's uh, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman's boss in Seven. It's mm-hmm. just like, you know... Um, he has the, almost a similar scene in Saving Silverman to Rip Torn asking his son to sodomize him, where he's just for no reason whatsoever in the front yard <coughs> in Saving Silverman taking a crap. And that scene is not funny on any level. It's, it's just it's painfully embarrassing to the actor to watch the scene in Saving Silverman because it doesn't work whatever magic or whatever level of operation that Freddie Got Fingered is working on can make Rip Torn asking his son to sodomize actually seem normal and within the context of the film. Whereas the scene, the similar type of scene in this other movie, which is just more of a, even though it's got some talented people like Steve Zahn in it and, and Arlie Ermey, it, everything about that movie falls completely flat. Um, so just on that very hand wavy type of criteria, I have to, you know, give a pass to Freddie Got Fingered for for making things like that at least on some level work for me subjectively when I was watching the movie. I think uh, one one last thing to sort of you know if you're kind of on the fence as to whether or not this was intentionally bad or whatever. That interesting to note the tagline for this movie was "This time you can't change the channel." So basically, I've got you in this theater for 90 minutes and you're going to watch me do stuff that you have no choice. Of course, you could walk out, but... Which many did. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I I thought it was interesting going back to Freddy Got Fingered uh, after, you know, just Tom Green being where he he is now and stuff like that. Well, he's completely different now. Yeah. I mean, you watch his talk show and he's... He's dropped all of the uh, funny faces and, and you know, He's wacky. He's the straight man most of the time now, which is pretty weird. Like, Yeah. Well, he's and, moved out of that phase or whatnot. And that's one interesting thing about his talk show is it's very uh, unprofessional. And that's almost, it's almost similar to Freddie Got Fingered because he's not particular, particularly a good host like a, a Letterman or a Conan O'Brien or whatever. But, you know, the the show is completely unscripted. All, all, like Letterman and everything, they have pre-interviews and everything is scripted. Tom Green just brings someone out into his actual living room and, and talks with them for an hour. And it does show, you know, it, it, he you can see him sometimes getting nervous or, or cutting people off or, you know, he's, especially in his earlier shows, he didn't quite have the... Uh, the tact, you know, to hold back from, you know, shooting like rapid fire questions at people or, or in, you know, in one episode he got drunk with Eric Estrada on and by the end of the show, Eric Estrada was visibly put off and Tom Green was gone. But, um, he, he is completely kind of different now. Uh, and it is cool to see him pursuing this talk show host kind of thing i mean he did have the tom green show on mtv where he did a talk show but um this one is i think truly innovative in in terms of how it's being mark uh put out there and the interactivity can i ask um andrew and marina um and, and maybe sean uh 
there's an interesting connection between Freddy Got Fingered and Cannibal Holocaust. Again, I, I again when I watched these two movies again within a 24 hour period, um, I realized how well they pair together because they're both hypocritical stunts. They're both work on a very meta level. Most of the appreciation is actually not derived from the product, but and they both have excessive use of animals in a not particularly good way uh, in the movie. So what was the reaction and women? What was the reaction to um, the, uh, you know, the horse, the, um, uh, the elephant and, and whatnot, just the fact that they had to do a little bit with, you know, they're not taking to the extreme of cannibal Holocaust where they're maiming and and destroying the animal for the purpose of the movie. Uh, But at the same time, you know, he's undeniably um, fondling the animal for, for the entertainment, ostensible entertainment value of that. What's the reaction around the table to that? Uh, I didn't have one, to be honest. But it wasn't the immediate disgust that you had with Cannibal Holocaust because the context is so different? I think for me, too, it's because those images of Tom Green with the animals, you know, were, that's kind of one of the things he's known for, you know, I felt kind of like, I don't know, desensitized to it. Yeah. Jackass, you know, they they jack off a horse in that show, you know. It's stuff I've seen before, and I didn't think it was particularly funny then, and I don't think it's particularly funny now either. I guess. Yeah, but I mean, I th- it's it is interesting the connections aside, between the two movies. Yeah, and aside from the my legitimate question about the elephant, I was serious when I was asking that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't have much of a reaction to it at all, and I, I should say that I've been I'm I've been sort of beating down this movie a little bit but only to play a little bit of devil's advocate because I did have fun with it I'll say again I laughed quite a bit and I thought that a lot of parts were really but if you go back and listen to everything we just said I think you'll hear a lot of oh well remember the scene where he did this that was funny oh remember the scene where he did this it wasn't that funny and I think that's about as far as you can really go with with discussing this movie is looking at it each scene and discussing whether that particular scene was good. Um, now, there, granted, we we went some we went somewhere with the uh, with the side actors. I think Sean made a great point about the fact that these other actors seem to be completely on board with this, and that really helped make the movie work. Rip Torn was unbelievable, um, but yeah, if I were sitting around talking about this with other people, I think it would just come down to. Remember when he was swinging the baby around and blood was flying, uh, and then we'd say, "Yeah, yeah, that was funny." Oh, and then remember that—that's—I think that's all you can get out of this, at least. For but me. don't, but don't you think that's a unique circumstance that you can have a discussion about a scene with a baby being swung around by its umbilical cord? I mean, that in <laughs> right. itself is a little bit sure. out there. I think that's what I think. Like that's what's special about this movie. Like I, I'm not like 100% a huge fan of Freddy Got Fingered, but there's some stuff in this movie that you won't see anywhere else. And, right. um, it's, it's memorable. It's got a lot of memorable scenes. And, le- yeah. and let's put things Watch. into perspective. I mean, I think myself and, and, and Jay have probably been the two most vocal defenders of the film. But if you put things into perspective, 45 years ago, um, maybe we'd be sitting around and, and speaking in the same sort of 
uh, tones with a Bergman film. And, you know, it's not a particularly good thing with our culture that we're, we've spent particularly this much time talking about Freddie Got Fingered as opposed to uh, something that achieves a different style of <clears throat> art. But there were... Th- um, all that being said, uh, the culture moves on, and if you go back and read some of the original reactions when this movie came out, there are several people that pick up on some value to Freddy Got Fingered. I mean, yeah, there's a swath of negative reviews, but there's there's the and then there's the quite positive New York Times review, but Roger Ebert probably had the best comment, and, and, and it's it's foreshadowing in the fact that we're living out that foreshadowing right now. I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's something to the effect of he hated the movie. He, he gave it zero stars, which he doesn't actually give out very many zero star reviews. And I think I have your quote. Well, okay. I'll, I'll let you read it then. Anyone with his nerve and total lack of taste is sooner or later going to make a movie worth seeing. Nope, that's not the quote I wanted. The quote I wanted is something more along the lines of five or six or ten or twenty years from now, um, Freddy Got Fingered is going to be appreciated as an act of neo-surrealism. You know, in the same way that (laughs) La Chaine Andalou, the uh, Salvador Dali, uh, Louis Bunel film, uh, was... You know, uh, you know, considered back in 1920. To some extent, we're doing that right now, and we're not alone. I mean, if you want to read some interesting things that hit on a lot of the points that we made here today, there's A.O. Scott's review in the New York Times, there's Roger E's review, and then earlier this year, um, Nathan Raven at um, the uh, Onion Audio Video Club uh, had this series where he dissected flops in hindsight and his piece on Freddie got fingered is mandatory reading as well, uh, as where he praises the film. So in a way, uh, there are people out there that are actually fulfilling the prophecy that Roger Ebert wrote amid, amidst the vitriol that he hated the film. He, even then he could say, yeah, there's some people that are going to appreciate it. I think Southland Tales, a film that I haven't caught up with now, may or may not have um, that effect. I mean, certain movies, Blade Runner, uh, certain movies just, well, for whatever, cannot be seen as they were intended within the glut of what is and at I think the time. a big part of that, what that was kind of blinding people at the time. And again, obviously there's going to be people down the road who still see no value in this movie. But I think a big part of it was the Tom green persona. He was so big at the time and overexposed. And people were just at the breaking point with him already that there was no way that they were going to actually give this guy credit for doing anything. You know, if this movie had been put out by someone who was, Let's say Charlie Kaufman, yeah, or some sort of artist or something. People totally would have at least stopped and thought, okay, what what's really the point of this movie? But most people just thought this is Tom Green trying to be funny again, as Funny Games is to the torture, excessively violent thriller. <clears throat> Freddie Got Fingered is to the gross out comedy. I think his his work is most appreciated by fellow comedians and industry people like from watching his show it i mean i i hear 
lots of people slamming Tom Green. And, you know, I've there's been occasions where I've been watching his show at work, which is probably a bad thing. But, you know, it would be on while I'm working on something else. And someone would walk by and be like, Tom Green, you know, he's still around or you like that crap. And um, I think that's the general consensus. But then when you see on the show all of his guests who are usually comedians of the same uh, sort of uh, caliber, I guess, and uh, they're all extremely uh, gracious and and they point out the fact that he is kind of a, a trailblazer, even if, you know, like I said, his his uh, influence has created something that many people don't like. But uh, I, I think there is more to him than there is to the jackass guys. But I, I enjoy jackass as well. But And to uh, bring the conversation back around to, as you compared Cannibal Holocaust to porn on some level, I, I just found it interesting. I was browsing Tom Green's buddy, Derek Harvey's filmography, and he is now a writer or was a writer for Jenna's American Sex Star and Night Calls. Nice. Oh, nice. For what it's worth. Well, again, <laughs> I, you know, is, is Freddy Got Fingered gross-out comedy porn? Like the, the equivalent, you know, to use that tired phrase of applying it to, you know, emotional porn or torture porn or whatever. I mean... Well, I mean, there's the he scene where... He tries to cut out all the connective tissue. And, of course, in comedy, the setup and everything is all necessary so he you actually chop your own legs off by cutting out all the connective tissue well i mean it's interesting too because the kinds of sort of teen comedies that you could say he's parodying um you know a lot of them have you know these hot girls to titillate you and stuff and he's got a scene of this girl moaning on the bed but he's whipping her legs you know it's like it completely turns it on yeah it turns it on its head so but uh, yeah, any uh, any final thoughts on Freddy Got Fingered? Yeah, well, I'd be remiss not to mention that this was filmed in my backyard, almost literally. When I saw the mall, I well, that was the local hangout in high school, so I thought it was worth mentioning. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought so. Well, and considering uh, that, that place is a shithole and nobody goes there, but <laughs> it was worth filming. So well, hey, well, that's good. There's an interesting tie in there, though, because um, Sean, uh, myself, and Jay are all in Southern Ontario, and so <clears throat> Tom Green's Ottawa cable access show was widely traded around Southern Ontario as a cult item for years and years before he was on MTV. So it's it's kind of a... I think we have a an interesting perspective in that we were not... He was not thrust into the spotlight for us. We had a lot of the backstory and a lot of the things. So there was a lot more context to the arc of what he was doing and and how MTV actually fucked it up. Uh, yeah. They didn't understand what he was doing. And yet he continued to barrel forward and actually integrated the mocking right into the exposure. And if you're just walking in to that and see it only from the everyone says this guy's a hot guy and whatever he does is 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 unquestionably good. It it creates a totally different um it creates a totally different in 
to the, to the material. And I, 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 I question if some of the sort of love or defense or, or, or um, lateral space that we cut Tom Green here from our perspective is the fact that uh, it was something that was built on for many years. It wasn't something that just jumped in the middle of the, uh, of the spotlight and then went from zero to overexposure. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when his show started and and it was huge among people just uh, taping it off television. But I mean, it was also kind of like we all kind of discovered it at first, you know, it started off small and it was something special that you would be like, hey, check this out. And then watching him make it uh, and then, you know, him openly now talking about how much of a struggle it was pitching his ideas to MTV and how they wanted to uh cut everything but you know for i am I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people haven't actually seen the original comedy channel or comedy yeah comedy channel show only the MTV stuff but but yeah i mean it could be that we're just kind of biased yeah but like i said i think there's a lot of influence out there and a lot of people who do think that tom green is uh truly innovative <clears throat> and I guess my final thoughts sort of on both films, Freddy Got Fingered and Cannibal Holocaust, would be that both do have some sort of artistic merit. They're not completely without worth, but I did walk away from both of them just sort of... I didn't feel like I was taking away anything as I, wa- as I finished the movie. I just kind of went, uh-huh. And, from you know, just a little bit of a hollow feeling. Uh not a whole lot to discuss for me, not a whole lot there. It was just, um, yeah, when I go, when I walk away from a movie, something like, something really great, like Little Children, or what else have we done in the past, you know, Ducky Sucker, I really felt like I had a good experience, and had something to take away with me, and remember, and with both of these films, I've seen them now, and don't really see myself revisiting them, or even discussing them all that much except for i mean holocaust obviously is is definitely a discussion thing i guess at a party or something you gotta see this crazy movie but yeah i uh i and so i'm I'm not really big on either one of them to be honest okay and i'm and for me it's i mean (laughs) Surprisingly, I liked Cannibal Holocaust more than I liked Freddy Got Fingered. Though, like I said when I started all this, I, I'm not ready to write Tom Green off as a complete waste of time. I think the guy does have talent. This just isn't my style of comedy. And for me, even the whole meta thing, I didn't think away from it. Other than spotting local attractions, that was about it. I would, totally, I would totally be up for watching Tom Green's, uh, like, his internet show or whatever that he does from his living room or whatever. I think that sounds great. I just don't know where to find it or hadn't heard of it until... I think you actually talked about it on a Film Junk podcast a couple yeah. weeks ago. <clears throat> I yeah. remember thinking, oh, it sounds awesome. Where can I find that? And then I just sort of... It slipped my mind. Well, Maybe <clears throat> that's something we can put me. in the show notes or something. Yeah, it's just tomgreen.com. Throw it out there. Okay. Um, so I, I have one more thing. Sure. If we're, if we're recording. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can just wrap it up. I guess. The uh, for me, these two movies were both highly enjoyable because my personal taste, when it comes to 
film experiments is that I like layers of meta. I like when actors are um, tying into other roles that they have and that actually comes into the movie. I mean, that, that's not literally what happens in these two films, but the fact that these movies work much more on a meta level than on a literal this is what you have in front of you and the fact that the movies extend beyond their own movie into uh, <clears throat> so many different avenues artistically in the pop culture sense and in terms of notoriety uh, I, I believe both of these movies earn their notoriety even if the you know artifacts themselves are not necessarily entertaining there are there's there's value there when you're considering cinema on the whole both of these movies are landmark movies in their own way even if they're destined to both be reviled from a popular entertainment standpoint okay uh well i guess um we can talk about what we're doing for the next show um now i guess we've kind of made a conscious decision that we don't want to uh have two more movies that are going to be uh torturous on some level um so the highest vote getter on the uh, poll at movieclubpodcast.com was Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. So that will be choice number one. And for our second choice, I believe we agreed on Bruce McDonald's Roadkill. Is that yes. correct? Uh, so Canadian filmmaker who um, I, I don't know for... for uh, people outside of Canada if his most well-known film might be Hardcore Logo but uh, yeah so those are the two movies we will have a new poll up for the following month's episode which you can vote on um, at movieclubpodcast.com and of course you can email us um, any suggestions you have um, I guess we don't have a, a contact link on the site yet but um, you can contact us through I guess row three or film junk and uh we'll we'll take it into consideration so i guess that's about it great stuff thanks for having me sean (laughs) (laughs) and leave whatever comments uh i mean if you've listened all the way through this show um and haven't thrown your computer across the room and how ridiculous the opinions are expressed in here uh, feel free to join the conversation or suggest anything through the comment section on the uh, on the blog um, yep definitely so uh, I guess that's about it we'll see you guys next month thanks for listening bye bye my mom is on the cheese mom is on the cheese if I get lucky I'll get a disease my mom is on the Swedish Swedish Swedish, Swedish. My bum is on the gum. My bum is on the gum. I can blow a bubble with my bum bum bum. My bum is on the ship, the battleship. I hope they don't shoot the cannon in my bum. I have to poo all over the place. Poo, cause that is very fun.